And while Rob is speaking, I will send, I will email the PDF because I'm trying to send it in um, the chat. It's not going to. So. Okay. I'll watch my email. Yeah. Welcome to everybody who's joining this session. We'll get started a little after the top of the hour. Now you're able to see my PowerPoint screen, right? Uh, yes, yeah, but not the in the PowerPoint. Yeah, not the presentation. Okay. There it is. Good. Yes, welcome to everyone who's joining. We'll just give folks about a minute to get in their um, spaces and then we'll get started. Well, welcome to today's SNEB webinar um, organized by the Division of International Nutrition Education. Uh, my name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB and glad you're joining us for the presentation today. Just a housekeeping to get us started. Um, I will have the slides available to put in the chat, but it'll just be just a moment. They're going to come over to me by email and then I'll um, share them out with you. Uh, we will take questions at the end of the webinar. So please type those questions in the question block or the chat block. Uh, when I close the webinar today, there's a short survey. We appreciate your feedback on this session as well as suggestions for future webinars. Um, and actually, I believe there's other webinars in this um, same series. So um, Constance will probably share some details about those plans. And then watch for an email follow-up. Um, should arrive to you before Friday of this week uh, with a link to the recording, um, the CEU certificate that you're earning with your attendance, uh, and the handout for today's presentation. So I'll introduce our um, moderator. Dr. Constance Chiwa is a Scientific Program Director at the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research. Uh, she's organizing this webinar on behalf of DINE. Thank you so much, Rachel. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening from wherever you are. Thank you for joining us. This is this webinar is a first of a series of webinars and discussions on millet, and we'll focus on the diversity of millets from around the world, including the United States of America, and highlight the nutritional and functional characteristics of millet. Millets are nutrient-dense, highly varied group of small seeded cereal grains that are tolerant to drought and poor soil, are nutrient-rich and full of health-promoting properties and have the potential to contribute to resilience of communities around the world. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization designated 2023 as the International Year of the Millets to help raise awareness to the multiple benefits of the millet. Today, we welcome two researchers who are experts in millet, among other things, to help kick us off. Dr. Rob Myers is the director of the Center for Regenerative Agriculture at the University of Missouri and an adjunct faculty member with the Plant Science and Technology Division. He also served as the regional director of extension programs for the USDA, NIFA, North Central Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program. His professional expertise encompasses sustainable and regenerative agriculture, soil health, conservation, 
and cropping system diversification. Dr. Kiruba Kirash Krishnaswamy is an assistant professor of sustainable food systems engineering at the University of Missouri. She's a joint appointment in the Department of Chemical and Biomedical Engineering and the Division of Food, Nutrition and Exercise Sciences. Her interest, her research integrates convergent sciences and engineering principles to address the interconnected challenges of food and nutrition security. Welcome Dr. Kirub and Dr. Rob. Please feel free, as Richard said earlier, to share your questions and comments via the chat. We will have a question and answer session after the two presentations. Thank you. Thank you. What to you, Dr. Rob and uh, Kiruba. Thank you. So these, like before we start, we would like to give an overview of few disclosures. We do not have any disclosures and how this relates with the SNEB. And what are we going to learn from uh, today's webinar is we'll be discussing various types of millets uh, that have been originated and uh, from different parts of the world. And then we will understand the nutritional characteristics of the millets and how they can be different from different millet species. And then we will discuss about uh, the food applications, how they can be used to develop new bariatric foods. So these are the learning objectives. And these align with uh, the following competencies for SNEB, that is the agriculture productions and food systems, basic food and nutrition knowledge, and food science. So these are the competencies for SNEB. And so now I... Uh, give the stage to drop to take us around the world and share his knowledge about this. Thanks, Karuba, and thank you for that introduction from Constance and Rachel. So yes, millets is a very exciting topic. Uh, as you heard, it's the year of the millets, according to the United Nations, and there's good reason for it. We hope to uh, educate you a little, as Karuba said, about millets and their potential. I've worked with millets myself uh, off and on for about 30 years and have grown several different species of millets. Uh, Karuba, if you'll go to the next slide. Just to kind of start out with what are millets? First of all, you probably, everybody listening has probably eaten millets, whether you know it or not. Uh, if you eat a multi-grain bread, like the Dave's bread shown on the right, uh, you undoubtedly have eaten some millet because it's a very common ingredient of multi-grain foods, whether it's multi-grain crackers, breads, cereals, you name it. Uh, there are a variety of millets, as I'm gonna introduce you to a little further, that are have been domesticated for human food. And in the US North American marketplace, we mainly see these again in the multi-grain products. Sometimes they're lumped in as ancient grains, which is a very loose classification. There's really no de official definition of what is an ancient grain, but uh, without question, these are grains that were domesticated thousands of years ago for human food use. Uh, the biggest use of them has been in Africa and Asia, but certainly there is some use in North America. And one of the driving forces among several is the fact that they are gluten-free, uh, given the, the sizable market for that. Next slide. So one thing I want to uh, make sure you come away from the presentation today with is an understanding that millets is a very broad term that covers some very different plants. They're all alike in the sense that they are plants that are grasses. Uh, you could say the same of corn and wheat. How they differ from things like corn and wheat is that they have smaller seed that for the most part is relatively rounded. And I just took a photo of several different millets that, that I had handy to me. Uh, these are relatively small seeds. Uh, typically, they're maybe two, three, four millimeters in diameter. The slight exception is Adlai millet. You can see has a little husk or caryopsis. And then within that are the smaller brown seeds. Uh, and Teff is the tiniest of them. So next slide. Just kind of looking at the different grasses that we harvest the seed of for food, the ones we're most familiar with, of course, are corn, rice, and then some of the cereal grains like wheat, oats, barley, rye, and triticale. But the millets would be a whole nother group of plants that are these annual grasses. So 
Again, they're from different parts of the world. The most common ones being what I would call kind of mid-major crops are pearl millet, proso, foxtail, Japanese millet, brown top, and finger millet. Now keep in mind, these are common names, not scientific names. And they're, when we talk about plants, uh, many plants have more than one common name, depending on what country you're from. There are other things that are sometimes loosely grouped with millets, like sorghum, teff, the adlai millet that I was just mentioning, phonio, and so on. One other thing from this slide I'll note is some of our cereal grains, uh, the wheat, oats, and so on, are things that do well in cool weather. Uh, we often plant them in the fall, like wheat and rye, and then harvest them the next summer. Uh, the millets are plants that exclusively do well in the warmer part of the year. Next slide. So why would we grow millets? Um, you're going to hear more about their nutritional benefits from uh, Karuba and her background as a food scientist and food engineer. But from a plant science perspective, which is more where I work, they're very tough plants that are widely adapted around the world. Uh, they're kind of underutilized. Uh, you know, they are important in certain areas like parts of Africa and Asia. But you know, when you look worldwide, uh, one reason the United Nations chose to highlight them for 2023 is they're not utilized as much as they really should be, uh, given their wide adaptation, nutritious characteristics, and so on. So anytime we can add biodiversity to our cropping systems, that's good from both an ecological and economic standpoint, and is really good for the health of the soil. Next. So where did these various millets come from? Well, pearl millet, which is the one that I've worked on the most, actually comes from Africa, but I've grown all of these listed here, plus some others. Uh, foxtail millet uh, comes from East Central Asia. It's most used in China, historically. Proso millet is one that is particularly known in Central and East Asia, um, some in Russia. Japanese millet, brown top millet, or Southeastern Asian crops, a uh, little more suited to the hot, humid areas and then finger millet coming out of East Africa, although much of its use today is actually in India. So those are just some of the millets, but again, there are others. Next slide. So pearl millet, just to tell you a little bit more about each of these, again, each of these has multiple common names. Uh, you can see that the pearl millet looks a little bit like a cattail plant with those very distinctive seed heads uh, that have many seeds on each grain head. These were again, domesticated for food use in Africa. In the United States, they've mainly been used as a forage crop, which means that they're fed, the whole plant is fed to livestock, either the cattle are turned into a field to graze them, or they're cut off and then hauled to the cattle. Uh, but there are types that are harvested for seed, and it has the highest seed yield of all the millets in the U.S., other than if we included sorghum as a, a type of millet. Now, there are grain types that are a little shorter. They might be about four feet tall. And then the forage types are, are taller plants. They're six or seven feet tall, typically. Uh, the seed or grain is perfectly edible for people, but mostly in North America, it's fed to livestock, uh, including chickens. Uh, but one thing I often say about pearl millet, it's like a bird feeder on a stick. You'll see uh, goldfinches and other birds just hanging on those grain heads, just Chip, chipping away at the seed and uh, really enjoying it. Next slide. Proso millet is actually the one you're most likely to have eaten in North America. Again, all these millets we're talking about were domesticated as human foods, but it just happens that in North America, the one that usually shows up in multigrain foods is proso millet. Probably about 99% of the time, if you see millet on a food, food label in the United States, it's going to be proso millet. Uh, it also has multiple common names. You can see those listed there. Um, it is grown at a moderate amount of acreage, about a half million acres, mostly in the High Plains region of Western Nebraska, Eastern Colorado. It's really best adapted to drier, cooler regions. And a fun fact about this is we think it was the first millet to be domesticated for human food use around 10,000 years ago. So it truly is an ancient grain. Next. Foxtail millet is one that I've enjoyed growing, grows pretty easily in the Midwestern US. Again, um, a lot of it is grown in China and other parts of Eastern Asia. 
Uh, it's got a lot of different names, which makes it a little confusing to people when they're trying to buy it in the marketplace, German, Italian, just because of different regions it's been adapted to. It also is a fairly old one, domesticated about 8,000 years ago. Now, in the United States, even though it's a perfectly nutritious, edible grain, it's, again, mainly used for livestock and cut for hay. Uh, very fast growing, tolerant to dry conditions, and one that's most used as a cover crop. And a cover crop is something used to protect and improve the soil when no uh, crops are being grown or going to be harvested for cashews. So it might be grown after early season vegetables like potatoes. Sometimes those whole heads, which can be about 8 to 12 inches long, uh, those grain heads or seed heads will be cut off and packaged for uh, pet birds like parakeets. You may see that in pet stores. Next slide. Oh, and there's, a, there's an example of a bag you might see sold in a pet store. Uh, now, Japanese millet is yet another one uh, that's got human use potential, and you, you can find it um, sometimes on like the ethnic food aisle, or if you look under some of the ancient grains, sometimes you'll see the Japanese millet, also called barnyard millet. It's a one that's particularly tolerant of wet soils, and so we see it planted along creek bottoms or wet areas uh, for attracting wildlife, particularly ducks, turkeys, and doves, but it can grow in drier areas. Uh, and it's actually the only millet that can live for a while in flooded conditions, but it can't be completely covered by water. So it's not quite as flood tolerant as rice, but it can live for a while in flooded conditions. Next. And then brown top millet is another one from Southeast Asia, uh, also tolerant of damp soils, but it, it will not live in flooded conditions, unlike the Japanese millet. Uh, this one was domesticated mainly in Southern India and is still grown there. Uh, and it's one that is particularly high in iron content. And all these millets do have good nutritional characteristics. Next. Finger millet is kind of an interesting one because the seed heads, are, which you see pictured here, as they mature, they grow from kind of having these um, straight components that start to curve like a fist closing. So if you Imagine when the, the millet starts producing the seed head, it'll look like your fingers stuck straight up. And then as it matures, it's sort of like the hand starts to close. So that's where the, the finger name comes from. It's often sold under the common name Raggy and uh, has a history of use both in Africa and Asia. It's very popular in India still today. Uh, I know Karuba has uh, eaten it uh, quite extensively there. And another one with good nutritional characteristics. Next. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Karuba to talk about some of the nutritional characteristics. Thank you, Ralph, for that journey towards millets and the world. And let's talk about some of the nutritional characteristics of these millets. As you see that there are most of the millets that we've seen are drought tolerant, climate resilient, and also they are um, from a phytochemical standpoint, they are gluten free, they are high in proteins, fibers, vitamins, and uh, mineral content. So these are the uh, beautiful pictures that we saw from uh, Rob's slides on the plant, but when we see them on um, in the grain form, this is how they look. And when we put them under the microscope to see the structural properties, this is how they look. And why it's important is because um, there is a gaining, like this is the trend of the yield of millets over the years. And we could see a increased interest in growing millets because of its nutritional properties. And also this year is the International Year of Millets. So what are the nutritional content that makes these millets very interesting? So I want you to pay attention to these like banyard, BY is banyard millet, this is little millet, and these are some of the powders that we developed from millets. Um, so it has high amount of like, and the scale is in percentage, so carbohydrate percentage, around 80% is carbohydrates in 100 grams, and then we have high protein content also. So carbohydrate and protein content is quite high in the millets. And, and also the fat, relatively less fat content and um, fruit fiber content is also less, depend, uh, quite high depending upon the varieties of the millet. But the most interesting thing that we see in millets are the protein profile. 
So here, what we are seeing is we are seeing essential amino acids and non-essential amino acids. So essential amino acids are required for the growth of um, is is essential for human beings so that we could um, um, like you know forming of proteins and so on. So this you can see it is high in threonine, valine, leucine, and arginine, and it's compared to maize and wheat. Uh, the millets are high essential amino acids. So that gives a beautiful profile. And also in non-essential amino acids, glutamic acid is quite high in millets as well. So this proves that these millets um, are a protein-rich food because they are able to give uh, the essential amino acids when we are consuming them. And so uh, millets are a very rich source of proteins and also dietary fibers uh, and vitamins and minerals compared to our, like you know the major rice wheat and maize the beauty they have a high profile so when we blend them together then we will able to get a nutrition rich food so and also so that's the chemical properties of the millets and from a physical properties of millets handling them that is also interesting so here you can see the images under an electron microscope so you can see this is for amaranth, this is for finger millet and little millet. So when we are processing a food, we have to do hulling, removing of the external hulls and so on. So that will impact the quality of the grain and also the nutritional properties of the grain. So you can see for sorghum, there is no impact because the grain is intact. Likewise for pearl millet, as Rob was showing in that uh, first image, the grains were exposed and they were beautifully um, like you can see them. But other millets, they have an outer pericard that uh, or a hull that needs to be removed. And that's why we see these uh, these um, degradations or impact mechanical damage because of that process. And finger millets has very fine microfibers. That's why it forms when it sticks to the surface where um, like, you know, it comes in contact. So these are some of the um, some of the physic, uh, physical and the chemical properties of millets. And now let's go into the food applications, how we can apply them in foods. So we've seen a variety of millets and because of the diversity, they can be developed into high value products. And, and also there is an interest in the health benefits and in order to satisfy the consumer needs, we need to develop products that are that are familiar as well as they they should taste good. So that's that's the uh, like you no, know, that's the requirement or the need for processing comes into place. And currently, these are some of the different types of products that can be developed from millets. It could be traditional recipes that are unique to the regions that that predominantly grows these millets from uh, Asia to Africa to different parts and countries have traditional foods that utilizes millets in their recipes. And then we could develop other products like uh, pastas, extruded and expanded foods, bakery foods, instant food mixes in forms of powders and ready to eat and ready to cook foods can also be made using millets. For example, uh, we, if, in order to make those foods, we need to have a little bit of processing to uh, separate or modify three major constituents that are present in the millets. We want, whenever we are processing these millets, because they are very small, and most of the technologies have been developed for rice, wheat, maize, all the major crops, but yet there is a more, there is a need or there is a, um, a research gap in processing of millets. So in processing, we need to remove three, the germ, the starch containing endosperm, and the protective pericarp. These are the things that will, gender, uh, will be removed during the processing uh, phase. Why? Uh, because we need to minimize the qualitative and the quantitative deterioration of the material during uh, post-harvest handling. So that's why we do these primary processing in order to get those grains um, 
And once we get the grains, we, uh, we could develop into value-added products. For example, I'm going to show, show a flow diagram for making pasta. So um, since millets are of very fine, smaller size, we could, it could be easily made into semolina, ground into fine powders or grits and mixed with uh, wheat semolina and then could be mixed and could be mixed with water or, and a little bit of oil for lubrication uh, and then extruded using the dye. So it could be, we could develop uh, vermicelli uh, like, you know, depending upon the changing the configuration of the dyes, we could uh, develop either uh, smaller, smaller extrudates or larger extrudates in terms of pasta. And all these uh, materials that's been extruded goes through a cooling phase, a drying phase and packaging. So for example, this is a cold extruder where we put the material that needs to be uh, mixed, like um, the millet flour or the semolina and the water. And, um, and if we want to have any flavors that gets mixed here. And in this section, there will be a, a, a mixer. So then it helps in mixing, uh, mixing all the ingredients together. And then it gets into this phase where we have the extruder. It's a cold extruder. It will be a single screw extruder, something like, uh, something like, uh, something like a sin single lane. And then we have the die in this region where we could have any configuration, a small uh, vermicelli, or it could be like a spaghetti or whichever die we want to have, we can have here and a cutter. So that's how this is a simple way, uh, like, you know, one processing method, but we could develop different value added products from there as well. For example, these are some of the uh, millets that are available in most ethnic stores in the US, or you can even purchase through Amazon. So once these are obtained, what are the different types of food products that can be developed? Uh, could be like, since I'm from India, I'm sharing some of the food products that could be developed using uh, millets. One is a dosa, that's more like a crepe uh, in the form of a crepe. Uh, then it's a fer like fermented and steamed product like idlis and uh, cut cutlets, and it could be even millet rice. So for each and every preparation, the processing method will change. And since we have a variety of millets, we could develop uh, different formulations. And the millets, since they are, uh, most of the millets are, um, they do not have a strong flavor or um, strong flavor. It could be used both in savory foods as well as in sweet foods. So this is a ragi, that is a um, finger millet, chocolate cake, and that's a pancake made with uh, a mix of multiple millets. So since in my previous slides, I showed about the nutritional composition of different amino acid profiles. So if we want to have a complete protein uh, food, then we could blend multiple millets and get a composition that could be developed into these um, healthy products as well. So so in the summary, what we want to uh, bring is millets have a great potential to add diversity to our farming system, as well as they provide resilience uh, for climate change, especially in hot, dry conditions. And Rao, I will give you the diet genetics and the, uh, the last statements. Thanks, Karuba. Yeah, so great summary. And, you know, they do have, again, very diverse genetics. Uh, so there's a lot of potential to improve these crops further. And I just want to reemphasize that there are these different, what we would call species of millets that are really as different from each other as wheat is from corn and oats. Uh, but again, they are all gluten-free. They all have good nutritional characteristics. And so we think are very deserving of more research, exploration, development, and partnership. So hopefully we've gotten you interested in millets and we'll be happy to take any questions from the audience. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rob and Kiruba. Uh, we are now open for questions. 
I'm going to check if there is. So there is one question for you from Mary Lee. I'll show my video. Are refined millets routinely enriched with B vitamins and iron in the U.S.? Ruby, you want to take a stab at that one? Yeah. Are refined millets routinely enriched with B vitamins and iron? Um, currently, the millets that we get are in whole grain form. So uh, we do not have any fortification systems in place for adding vitamins and iron in millets in the US. But uh, there are some biofortification programs that has, uh, that's been like, you know, there is a, a randomized control study about iron rich pearl millet, as well as uh, other millets that is happening in India. So uh, there's more in biofortification that's happening, but most are in early research and development stages. We have not commercially uh, have any products yet. But that's a great question, thank you. Thank you. The second question is from Diane uh, Moosman. Thanks for an informative presentation. I believe fox sale millet is considered invasive in certain US states. Please correct me if I'm wrong. What considerations are made regarding the invasiveness of millets prior to their recommendation for using agriculture? Second question, how can we ensure we are supporting sustainable agriculture when purchasing millets? Yeah, I'll take that one. So, you know, anytime we introduce a plant from a different region of the world, we have to be um, conscious of the fact that there's a potential for it to grow more as a weed. Uh, so the first thing I would say is foxtail millets are very different from the foxtail weeds that you might find in gardens or farmer fields. Those are different species of plants. They look somewhat similar. They don't have as, the, the weedy types don't have as big of seed heads. But the foxtail millet itself, um, Ceteria italica, that comes from Eastern Asia, um, it is not considered invasive in the areas that is mainly being grown in the U.S., which is like uh, Kansas, Nebraska, a little bit of Missouri. There has been a question of whether it has potential to be invasive in the southeastern U.S. Uh, so my own feeling is that it, with any of these crops, you kind of have to pay attention to them. But when we look at something that really becomes a serious weed problem, it's usually something where the seed will persist in the soil for a long time or otherwise be um, able to um, kind of keep itself going in the environment. Um, so there's a slight risk of foxtail millet being an issue in some of the southeastern states. Um, I personally have not seen any challenges at all with it in Missouri where I've grown it, but it's, it's a great question to raise. Now the second question, which is how can we ensure that we're supporting sustainable agriculture. So millets as a group of plants that don't require a lot of fertilizer, don't require a lot of water, uh, are things that are inherently what we call low input. In other words, the farmer doesn't have to purchase a lot of chemicals and fertilizers and irrigation water to grow them. So that almost immediately makes them more sustainable in some regards than things like corn that do take a lot of Fertilizer usually are grown with a lot of uh, herbicides, potentially some insecticides or fungicides, and often do require irrigation water. So, so that's the big thing to know. Uh, but the other thing is we'd like to take some of our cropping systems that are not very diversified, like much of the wheat that we grow in the U.S. is grown over and over in the same field. It is the only crop ever grown in that field when you're talking about the western U.S. And a lot of the uh, what we'd call the, the Midwest or breadbasket of the U.S. Uh, we have corn and soybeans only. And uh, the idea with the millets is they give us a crop that we can rotate in the field. So one year we would plant a type of millet that's appropriate to that area. And then maybe we'd grow the corn and soybeans. So we're getting more of a rotation. And that reduces pressures from some insects and diseases so that we don't need as many chemicals. It also helps improve the health of the soil because we're giving the microbial community in the soil more plants 
uh, a more biodiverse system. So those are a few things to keep in mind that help millets contribute to sustainability. Great questions. Thank you, Rob. There is a question from Christine Suss. Do certain types of millets have more fat than others? Do you have information on the fatty acid profile of different millets? So we kind of, we looked into the protein content of uh, millets and we see that there is a difference because proso millet had higher protein content compared to other millets. In terms of fatty acid profile, uh, based on what we've studied so far, we've found like 2% to uh, the maximum of 4% fat in some millets, but they have all remained the same. We didn't, we didn't see much difference in the, uh, the fat content. So that's the, the crude fat content. Yeah, chances, fatty acid profile. And not we didn't study the fatty acid profile. We studied the amino acid profile. But that's a good question. We'll study it. Soon. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's some information in the research literature on the characteristics of of some of the more common millets in terms of their fatty acid profile. And uh, as, as Kruba is indicating, none of these are grains that are very high in fats. They're, they're relatively low in fats, but um, anytime we look at different uh, plant species, we see some differences in the fatty acid profiles. So, so they're not dramatically different in their fatty acid profile, but there are some, some modest differences uh, from what, what I have seen, but it's one of those areas that it would be lovely to do some more research. Okay. We have another question from uh, Sarah Theory. What would it take to elevate the use of millet among consumers, just like rice and wheat? Well, I'll, I'll start, Karuba, and you can, you can add to it. You know, um, I've worked with a variety of alternative uh, crops that are the less common ones we eat, let's put it that way, um, for 30 years. And the one that has been a notable success, at least to a degree, among the, the seed types of plants is quinoa. So when I first started working with some of these alternative grains like millets and amaranth and buckwheat and so on back in the early 1990s, uh, quinoa was not very used in the United States then but it has really taken off. And though it's still not nearly as commonly used as wheat or oats or corn, for example, uh, compared to these other things like millets, we use a lot more quinoa in the US diet. And uh, I have puzzled over that because although quinoa does have some very desirable nutritional characteristics, it has a very well-balanced amino acid profile in terms of the essential amino acids, so does uh, a crop called amaranth that uh, Karuba mentioned briefly in her slides, a crop that I've worked on quite a bit. Uh, but I think it's it's just been effective marketing by some of the countries that have been companies that have been interested in quinoa, and uh, it has gotten picked up by various you know chefs and and people that are promoting the grain. Uh, so. It's like anything, it needs people to be more aware of the grain, more articles about it. Those of you that work in nutrition, as you're talking about alternatives uh, that are gluten-free uh, for people that, to get them to have more variety in their diet, uh, not that we're gonna convince anybody to eat you know, a huge portion of their diet in millets, but just another way to diversify their diet, uh, get a greater variety of nutritional sources. So. I think it's just one of those things if it were to appear more on food shows and some uh, magazine articles, we'd start to see some more interest. But Karuba, what would you add to that? Those are great points, Rob. Just to add a few, it's because millets, like, you know, they've been consumed. I was reading a few articles and we always think that it comes from Africa and Asia, but there are records that even in the US, there was like, in, like you know, native Indians, they used to consume these crops. So when we are reviving these ancient grains, just um, telling that story, like how they've been part of our system and um, they are nutrient rich, they are climate resilient as we move forward. And when we are facing this climate crisis, what are the options that we have? And uh, so from a sustainability standpoint, there is a story. And also these are nutritious. If you've consumed uh, millet-based food, you'll really like it because it's 
it has its unique flavors and we could develop mostly all the foods that we developing using rice, wheat and uh, corn by blending them together to introduce them. Then eventually a consumer's taste, once consume, like people start tasting it and understanding the health benefits of it, I think there'll be more uptake. And for that, we need partnerships. We need nutritionists. We need uh, we need plant breeders, processors, uh, everyone, and policymakers who can take those decisions so that people can get uh, these diversified veins for better health for both the planet as well as for our people. Thank you, Kirub. I just have a quick follow-up question to that one. Um, I'm thinking that maybe for some of these greens. If you think about industry processors, they are part of this, you know, one of the stakeholders that can actually help highlight and see, help, you know, get these uh, grains like millet or underutilized crops into the main food system, main food chain. My question is for millet, what is it that is in millet that you think would be uh, appealing to processors for them to actually see the need or the benefits of? you know, engage, being engaged in these discussions and, and, and being part of the process? Well, it's some of the things we're already seeing in the marketplace. The gluten-free is probably the, the biggest driver, but um, the ancient grains, you know, we're seeing more and more food products that have that ancient grains <laughs> designation. And so that's attractive. And when people want a multi-grain product, and I'm not talking like two or three grains, but if they want like a 10-way, 12-way, 15-way a multi-grain blend, they, they almost have to go to the millets to be able to get that in terms of what's readily available in the marketplace. Now, really quickly on that point, we get into a, what we call a catch-22 with the big food companies. I've, I've talked like to the vice president for research at General Mills in the past, and why don't you use some of these alternative grains and some of your breakfast cereals? And he'd say, well, we're, we're aware of these. We've tested them in our kitchens. We think they're great. But until there's both consumers saying they want that grain and also a larger supply of it available, we're just not gonna get into that because they deal with what's readily available. So it's it's one of these things that we need a kind of a coordinated effort, which I see there's another question about government involvement to kind of get over the, the threshold with some of these where we have a bigger supply, more farmers growing them, uh, more consumer awareness, and then some of these things start to fall into place. Yeah, those are great points, Rob. Uh, just continuing the same um, discussion, because when we have, like, you no, know, Rob was saying, we need farmers, we need consumers, and processors. Constance, your question was mostly focusing on the processors, right? Processors are mostly the middle segment in the food chain. And that middle section will be pulled or pushed based on the needs of the people as well as the supply, supply and demand. So if that is available, then the process are going to adapt, right? So it comes from these two segments that is going to uh, make sure that the processes are able to uh, satisfy the needs of the consumers and also get the enough supply of millets because now we have very small pockets. We don't have enough production that can get into the processing stage. And that's a big, uh, like in a bottleneck. So, so that's where the policy comes into play. And Rob has more experience in that. So I'll let him share his views. Thank you, Kiruba and Rob. Uh, yeah, you're, you're right. It is a catcher two situation, but yeah, you're right. Everybody needs to act. So all stakeholders have to be at the table for this to work. There is a, a related question coming from Eunice Bansi. Some grain growers, wheat, corn, and rice get subsidies from the federal government, specifically USDA. Is millet included? Should it be an alternative crop? Yeah, so this is a, an ongoing challenge that our uh, federal in the United States, and this is true to some extent of the European Union and, and Canadian policies, is that we tend to focus on the biggest crop species. So in the United States, that means corn, soybeans, wheat, and cotton. Those are the four that get by far the lion's share of the policy attention. And, and I've worked in Washington at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And early in my career, I worked on Capitol Hill 
on the on the House Agriculture Committee. I, I was just in Washington a couple of weeks ago, meeting with the Secretary of Agriculture in a group meeting, and so I'm very familiar with these challenges. And uh, it's a big barrier. It really makes it harder for these more minor crops to uh, get farmers to grow them because the farmers are receiving a variety of subsidies for the bigger crops. And so if there were no subsidies for like corn, wheat, soybeans, it would be easier for things like millets to profitably compete. But uh, so we've kind of distorted the playing field a little bit. Um, now, proso millet, they, it is possible to get crop insurance in certain areas. So that's a little bit of a subsidy, but the, the major subsidies that farmers get for the bigger crops really aren't there. And it's also true in the research area. There's almost no governmental research funding for things like millets, whereas there's a huge amount, uh, both public and private sector research going into uh, crops like corn. So I, I linked an article from NPR that came out about a week and a half ago, and uh, I made the comment in there, if we just took a million dollars of research funds and put it on millet, we could really make a lot of impact. But if we spend another million dollars on corn research, we don't really get very far because there's already so much happening in that area. But yeah, so it's it's a challenge, the policy issues. Thank you. Um, we have another question. Can you prepare millet like brown rice? Is the cooking time longer? I can do that. Uh, millets, it depends upon different millets. For example, proso millet, you can, like, you know, if we can just boil like brown rice, 20 to 30 minutes is enough for that to cook. It's like uh, how we make quinoa and so on. Uh, but if we are making sorghum or if we are making um, like, a millet that has the external, it's not dehulled, then it might take a longer time. And for that, we could pre-soak. Soaking will be a good pre-treatment so that we can remove the tannins or anything that is already uh, present in there. So soaking and um, and like cooking for certain millets, but for most of the millets, uh, which are dehulled, um, how we do brown rice should be good enough. You don't need extra time for that. Example, kudo millet, little millet, uh, a little bit of banyard and proso. These in all 20 to 30 minutes should be good enough to get that nice fluffy uh, cooked food. And is it safe to assume that with just when you're preparing, you can mix in all the other different vegetables or meats and trying to think how to incorporate other healthy, healthy food options in there? Yes, you can you can make it in like no when you're making soup, you can add it to that so it boils along with the soup. Uh you can mix it with like quinoa, whatever we've done with quinoa, we've taken quinoa and added to most of the foods. Likewise, millets can and like couscous. If you make because size of couscous and most of the grains are similar. So any recipes, and once we make into powder, then we can blend it and make into pastries and cakes, and it can go to any recipe. So I've enjoyed tasting them. So I would recommend, you can get it on Amazon. So, yeah. Eunice has an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if millet is pushed like sorghum for biofuel, it would chart its pathway to the diet. What do you think? Well, it's true that uh, some of these grains, uh, you know, any grain, it's it's kind of a funny thing that all, pretty much any grain or seed crop that we could harvest can be um, fermented and made into alcohol. So, uh, you know, you think of all the different alcohols that come from rye and wheat and corn and so on. Well, you can do that with any of the millets too. And so if you go to their centers of origin, like in Africa, there are alcoholic beverages made from millets. And the reason I'm mentioning the alcoholic beverages, it's the same process that we use to make the ethanol that we would, when you go to the gas pump and you're pumping gasoline in your vehicle, you may sometimes see that 10% of it is ethanol, or at least one of the options is 10% ethanol. And the ethanol in the United States is almost entirely coming from corn. If you're maybe in Louisiana, you might get some sugarcane uh, ethanol. In other countries, it could be coming from other crops. But um, yes, you could, make, you could make ethanol from some of these grains. It's just that the infrastructure is 
you know, basically 100% focused on corn in most of the United States. So, uh, and I know it was kind of a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek comment, but, uh, but the reality is that anytime we can identify multiple uses for these crops, it helps move the crop uh, forward. So, although we have talked mainly today about the food uses, as I said, there are livestock uses for these crops. In some cases, they're used in, in pet products. Uh, one of the things I find interesting, given that you folks are nutritionists on the call, is that um, some of these alternative crops, their easiest pathway to success has been the pet food market, because in the premium pet food industry, uh, it seems the owners are willing to pay a really high price for their pets, maybe even more than they do for some of their own food. So um, we may, may, who knows, we may start to see more millets in some of the pets. Right now, there's kind of a bias away from grains and the pet foods instead towards, you know, meats and vegetables, but um, it could change if they're looking for certain characteristics that they want to get into the pet food product. So anyway, but yeah, I don't think ethanol millet is going to happen soon, but interesting to think about. Yeah. Just to add, uh, yes, we could have a lot of industrial application because with uh, the whole from the root to the end of the plant can be utilized into some uh, product. So that's where, like, you know, thinking in terms of more circular economy, how we can utilize the whole uh, plant without any waste. So that needs a lot of research, research and development, and that that's by funding. So it's like a cycle. So question. Yeah. Rob, I'm wondering, as you mentioned about paid food and uh, there's, there's an increased focus, less on grains and more on the meats or something like that. I'm wondering, millet could be that healthy grain that could be <laughs> marketed to that. But again, we think about human consumption, but you know. All right, I have a comment from Lean and she says, uh, I find millet to be delicious with a sweet flavor. In the US, it seems to be known as bad food. I've cooked millet and served to young children as hot breakfast cereal, which they enjoyed very much. Although I wish it wasn't so, it needs a clever marketing campaign. So it's more of a comment. Yeah, and again, I think that's happened with uh, quinoa. Um, I, I noticed on uh, a few years ago, it was really being marketed on television that uh, quinoa burgers and it wasn't even an art it wasn't so much selling quinoa burgers but it was an article for a beer commercial that was being shown on football games a lot but they were playing off of a guy cooking the quinoa burgers and the, it was giving his team a lucky uh, streak in the football game so he had to keep eating the quinoa burgers every football game uh, in order to keep his team winning and you just you need something like that where it enters into the public consciousness a little bit more and um so i hope i hope we see that that would help i hope i will second that as well because we need more uh way of communicating all the benefits of this these mighty grains and i the breakfast it could be like an oats um like in a porridge oats breakfast cereal it would be great with some milk and honey I think the kids will love them. And I think if you look at various uh, communities, ethnic groups where millets are part of their diet, you'll see them using this millet in different ways, whether it is part of porridge breakfast mm -hmm. or other foods used during the uh, different meals. I have a question regarding, uh, the, a question or comment. If you look at quinoa, there's been an increased acceptance of quinoa in the US, and I want to believe other uh, countries in the West. And the issue has been that with that, a lot with that development and uh, increased use of, of quinoa, the communities from which quinoa originated have been forgotten and did not really benefit from this outgrowth. How do we ensure that we prevent something like that happening when you look at the millets? Because these are really still underutilized grains and shell here in the US and where many Western nations, but they do come from various communities around the world where they're part of their diet, where that's why they grow on this biodiversity. How do we ensure these communities 
are protected from what we've seen with quinoa and that they also benefit from whatever comes out of this. Yeah, well, one thing one thing that's kind of good about the grains is they can be transported relatively long distances at lower cost compared to something like vegetables that need, you know, um, they're higher in water, they it takes more energy to transport them, you've got tougher storage conditions. So that makes it easier for, let's say, um, pearl millet that we're going to use in the United States is coming from a part of Africa that we can import it. Uh, and use it. But I think part of the challenge is keeping the identity known. So we have this big problem with millets in that people don't know what they're getting. They, they see on the food label millet, but is that pearl millet from Africa or is it proso millet from Russia or grown in the US or is it foxtail millet from China? You know, it's sometimes not clear with the food labeling. So, so good uh, identification of the source of the food would help. Um, and then I think as we look at research going forward, uh, right now, the millets, uh, to my knowledge, none of them, I, I know in the United States, none of them are what we would call genetically modified organisms. They've all been, uh, the varieties we have have been developed through traditional plant breeding. And that's important for the countries where we have uh, farmers growing them in the places of origin, because that way they maintain the ability to grow the improved varieties. When we, we get the ones that are genetically modified along with whatever other concerns you have, it can limit the farmer's access to the seed because the quote unquote intellectual property for the seed goes to the company that did that genetic modification. And, and so it can make the seed higher in price than the farmers can afford to pay and, and that can be an issue. So again, fortunately with the millets, we're not in that situation uh, at this moment of time. And I hope that will stay the case, but very good observation constant. So we need to think about how the farmers and the centers of origin of these plants uh, can continue to benefit. Thank you. To add um, to that discussion, that's a great discussion. And uh, thanks for the question, Constance. Like how do we protect communities? Because they have the knowledge. If a community is growing that grain, that means they have uh, the like you know the traditional knowledge of growing it and also processing the food. But what we find missing is they might know to process in a small scale in household level, not in a small industrial scale or a um, like you know a startup scale. So giving that knowledge like. They have the farming background, but giving that middle piece, which is the processing background, and maybe it's a cooperative of different communities coming together so that they still maintain that identity. They still maintain certain uh, the, the recipes or the formulations that they develop. So that way we are not taking it, growing it in one place and moving it to another region, but help the community also to grow together. So that's where we need uh, supports the policy and uh, the partnerships. Like if that is developed, who is going to buy that and how it's going to go to the consumers. So that supply chain uh, connection needs to be uh, incorporated as well. So a lot of work to do. Yes, yes, a lot of work to do. Thank you so much, Kiruba. Eunice just shared a comment. Millet is making its way into plant-based protein sources, into vegan diets. That's absolutely right. We are seeing more of that. Um, and uh, I was just telling you at the beginning, I did take millet milk at one of my various meetings. I was so excited about it. I want to thank you. are running out of time. It's 2.58 p.m. right on the dot. I want to thank all everybody in attendance. I want to thank the presenters for a wonderful presentation and really enriched discussion. Thank you so much. And I also want to encourage you. This is just the first of a series. Our next uh, millet discussion is going to be there during the SNEB conference. So we welcome everybody to be part of that. And also coming into the new year, we'll also be having some a, a session or two on millet. So look out for those announcements. And again, everybody have a good afternoon. Uh, thank you so much. Back to you, Rachel.
<laughs> Thank you. So now I'm definitely going to order some millet and try that for my breakfast. Uh, just a reminder, when I close the webinar, there's a short survey, and we appreciate your feedback on this session. And then watch for an email follow-up um, by Friday of this week uh, with a link to the handout, your CEU certificate, and the recording. Um, and as Constance mentioned, uh, registration is open for the SNEB uh, International Conference in July. Uh, we just passed 500 registrants yesterday. Uh, so uh, there's still time to save on a discounted registration through June the 19th. Uh, June the 19th is also the hotel deadline. Um, so go to the SNEB website to learn um, more about the conference and make that registration. And then we did just add um, a webinar on the calendar for early July. Um, on nutrition education uh, for individuals with disabilities. And I think there's one or two other events um, in the works for July also. So as always, keep an eye on the website uh, for updated uh, event information. And so thank you all for attending today. Thank you.